Welcome to the Stuck Mike podcast, the podcast created for all pilots new and old. My name is Tim and each episode alongside guests and regulars Davey, Robin and Gary, we will be bringing you honest and open content from inside the world of aviation. Our aim is to create a global community for conversation and support and to tailor the content to you, the listener, over each series. We bring you this podcast remotely as currently we are all grounded due to this pandemic. We sincerely hope that you find interest, support and enjoyment from the content. We aim to cover topics such as Corona, mental health, failure and recruitment in this series as we focus on the world of aviation right now and what we hope the future holds. If you're enjoying this podcast, please like, review and share it as it allows us to create a larger community. Now, on with the podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the second episode of the Stuck Mike podcast. First of all, we'd like to thank those of you who are joining us for the second time. And for those of you who are new, we'd please like to invite you to go back and listen to our first episode on Can Corona End Pay to Fly? I'm joined today by our regulars, Davey, Robin, and Gary, and today we're going to be discussing failure. First of all, we'd also like to tell you that we are on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Just search for the Stuck Mike podcast, and we are now available on YouTube, as well as Spotify, Soundcast, and Apple Podcasts for your listening enjoyment. So let's get into today's podcast. Today, we're going to discuss failure. Can pilots accept, process, failure, and how the perception of failure influences the world of aviation. Guys, what does failure mean to you? Well, uh, for me, failure means two different things. Uh, the first thing is failing and do something when you know you did everything in your power to to overcome or to pass the, uh, the assessment or an interview. If, if you know you did everything you could and you fail in this particular part, then I don't feel as bad as, uh, as, as I maybe I should have because I know that everything I could and there's just a higher power of why I didn't make it. But I've also have experience in failing in situations where afterwards I could have had the feeling I could have done more. And this is the feeling I can, it's difficult for me to live with because you know uh, you can do better. Uh, so in this stage, uh, in this case, you just have to learn from it and Make sure it won't happen again in the future, but yeah, this is always the harsh part because in the future you never know how you have to prepare in the most ultimate way. But for me, these are the most two different things for me, how I deal with failure in general. Right, so uh, failure for me, the, the definition of failure, if you look in a dictionary, is a lack of success in some effort, uh, an occurrence in which someone does not do something that should be done. Um, I think as a professional, uh, I sometimes get a failure of failure when I haven't done something up to the standard I want to do, even though in the eyes of other people, you're still doing a very good job. So for me, it can be seen as where you think you've done a, a subpar job while you actually done a quite decent job or to the point that you fail an exam or a test or etc. It, it can be perceived in different ways. I think, I think following on from Robin and uh, Davey, uh, I think it, it, it outlines it pretty well. It's a perception. Um, and it depends on where you've, on where that failure is. I think in our industry, it's, it's, perce- it's perceived very, a lot more crucial than say uh, what we used to do, you know, in college or whatever, when you'd have two, three, four chances. Um, if, if, if before you'd come to say the final test, because we're talking about failure in aviation, for example, because of aviation, the cost, the amount of money involved, it's it's a more it's under more scrutiny for us. So failure is a, is perceived a lot more crucial in this world, I think, and it's a, it, it's a lot more hurt. It can be a lot more hurtful. Yeah, I think that's I mean that's a very good point and. I think that takes us quite nicely into into how it starts because um, I think for for most of us or most of us looking to become pilots or become pilots, the the fear of failure starts at the very beginning. It starts at assessments for flight schools. It starts when you're actually in flight school and doing your exams because it definitely seems to me that um, I remember during my flight training that everyone was 
terrified of, say, failing an ATPL exam or of failing their instrument rating the first time because that there was the perception and perhaps the reality that you would not be able to get a job or not be able to get the job you're choosing or you'd be far down the pecking order. And which it seems kind of incredible because you, you're paying to do, you're paying a lot of money to do a training, which is uh, taken over in a very relatively short period of time. So it's, it starts, I think, the, the sort of stress of failure or the perception of fear of failure starts very early for, for pilots. Yeah, I mean, um, for example, if you fill the assessment for a flight school you want to go to, you still have different options because there are many different flight schools you can actually go to now these days. So if you fill the one, you can always go to another one. But the moment you're in a flight school and then you start failing um, your exams or any uh, flying flying exams, then you kind of have a problem because, like you said, then you already have invested big time in the education. So the pressure is on. Maybe your parents even... Uh, have a mortgage on your house and they took a double one because just to to make the cost of your education. So the moment you start in the flight school, I think the pressure is, is getting more different, as you said. Yeah, and I think, and as well, I think what I saw when I was just starting out in flight school from the first day, they were saying, okay, you, you ATPL exam marks, uh, airlines are looking for minimum 85%, otherwise they won't take you on. So what I saw what was happening is a lot of students, they would literally just go on their ATPL database and just be database, database, database. And just because they were so afraid of not marking 100% on an exam and to in, in their eyes to fail what uh, what airlines would want to see. And what ended up happening is a lot of guys, they would have really high marks in their exams. And as soon you you fast forward an hour, a year and a half and they go for the job interviews and they just go blank because they didn't have the knowledge because they were so focused on not failing. Leading on from what Davy said, actually, and in fact, what everyone said, there's a massive misconception. And the biggest thing, when we talk about things like the learning in, in, in uh, what we call in uh, entity called neuro-linguistic programming, what you have is uh, the learning matrix. And the first, uh, when you're sort of learning something, you have um, the first four stages. One is, uh, the first stage is unconscious incompetence when you don't know what you don't know. And a lot of us go into the uh, aviation world, into this part, not knowing what we don't know. So we want to get all the grades, pass it, but what we don't realise is we're not actually learning the content, we're learning how to pass the test. And what the biggest misconception is, I know guys that didn't get the highest grades, but ended up working for legacy carriers later on. So... But a lot of people go in with the misconception that if you get the highest grades, you're going to get the best job. And I think there's a lot of unknowns when they go into certainly the training and it leads to massive misconceptions. So basically, maybe it's the flight schools, flight schools taking the wrong approach. They, 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 they don't prepare you for the airline later on. They just prepare you to get your license. So maybe they should, you know, train in, in a different way then. Yeah, it's, it also seems that there are very different techniques done by all the flight schools as to how they, how they do this. I know some flight schools, they like to do all of the ATPL exams and theory at the beginning stage uh, before you even set foot in an airplane. And I think part of that is financial. So it allows you to back out at that point before you've invested a huge amount of money. Uh, but for me, that seems a little bit crazy because... I think you you cannot have enough knowledge of aviation of of flying to to do those tests at the beginning. It's not really a test of your uh, skill or knowledge as a pilot. It's a test of your memory retention, basically, and how much you can learn in a short period of time. But the other flip side to that is perhaps that's the best preparation you have for an airline career because once you've started from that point onwards, you're going into type ratings which uh, also require you to take a huge amount of knowledge in a very short period of time and to pass technical tests before you even go into the simulator sometimes. But I know from my own flight school, I really enjoyed the fact that they had sort of the basic uh, flight training things, so like principles of flight, aircraft general knowledge, meteorology, alongside your first VFR stage of flight. And then when you went into IFR, you had instrumentation and RNAV. And then towards the end of the flight training, you did your air law and operational 
So it, it felt like much more of a natural progression and you could bring some of the knowledge of what you were doing into the tests. But I do know from other flight schools that you do it all at the beginning, which I do understand the logic to that in terms of the investment. But again, I think it perhaps even undervalues the education that you're providing. Perhaps. Yeah, and I agree with what Tim says. Yeah, I agree with what Tim says because um, I did all the training at the beginning. So it was seven months of pure theory, just ATPL exams, ATPL exams, ATPL exams for seven months, nothing else. And then we started flying it. So by the time you get to your CPL exam and you need to know all the theoretical knowledge, it, it just sagged that much. You literally spend another couple of weeks just getting the knowledge back up to pass the actual exams to get the license. So... I like the approach that you just explained to him. So in my mind, that makes a lot more sense as well. So maybe it's a good idea to maybe start with the PPL then get your PPL license by actual flying and then go to the commercial part. But then at least you know what you're, what you're doing, you know, at least you have some flying hours, you know, it makes more sense to your ATPL then, you know, because it's more related to flying. That's interesting. Literally what you brought up, Robin um, and Davey, um, basically what you're talking about is and it goes back to what I was saying about neuro-linguistic programming. And I don't think, I think there's a big problem with the way, I think the aviation industry has very much regressed. When you look at um, industries like the fitness industry, for example, they've seen a massive progression. Um, you can train anywhere, you can do anything. If you want the body that you want, you don't have to go and slog your guts out for five hours in the gym every day. There's ways, to, you know, if you're busy, there's ways to, get your body into a way you want to get it you want to get it with flying we always seem to be going around in circles learning through books and learning pages one to 500 and i think the thing about neuro-linguistic programming is we talk about the state of mind and uh, we talk about neuro association i.e learning what's relevant and, and 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 by learning what's relevant at the right point of time you actually retain that knowledge much quick more quick you assimilate that knowledge much more quickly and you retain it much more effectively. And I think that's what needs to be done, really. I think that's where these schools are going wrong, and, and even onwards to tight ratings. Yeah, because uh, flight schools are getting bigger and bigger, you don't get the personal approach anymore. So if you fail in a subject or something like this, then you don't get the personal touch from the instructors, perhaps, because they don't have the, uh, there's no space for it, because the classrooms are getting too big. Oh, and I think as well, the, the way the failure is um, kind of uh, approached in a flight training environment, it's, it's more about uh, from a financial perspective. It's like, okay, you failed this exam. And I remember there was one uh, person in our, not in our class, but in the same school at the same time we were doing our education. And he had uh, issues with the first few ATPLs. And the... The, the way to talk about that was to talk about whether he should be doing his, uh, continuing his flight training or not, which is kind of a, uh, quite extreme because I think most of us, well, we, most of us have been flying for 10 years. How much of those ATPL subjects knowledge base do we use on a day to day basis? It's quite minimal, I think. And I know it's maybe akin to a lot of industries and a lot of um, education where it seems to be you teaching to pass an exam as opposed to having any knowledge. But it's. It, I found it interesting that their approach was to think of it in a financial perspective and not to think about what causes that failure of, of not passing a test. Yeah, true. And I mean, for example, when you come from high school and you start in a pilot school, you never had to deal with that kind of pressure you deal with at the flight school. For example, if you fail one flight, and basically you get a second chance, a second exam, and you fail that one and you're out. I mean, that's that's the pressure you, you're not used to deal with when you're 19 to 20 years old. So suddenly you have to pass this exam, otherwise you, you will be in financial problems. Your family will, will treat you differently because you didn't pass the pilot school. I mean, so many things are happening in that moment and you're not prepared at that age for this kind of pressure, I think. No, I think, I think what it comes down to then, what we're saying really is money. That's ultimately what it comes down to. I think um, that's really, the, I think the irony behind it really is if we put more time into working out the best way of effective learning, you'd fill the gap of the people that are failing and you'd consequently save money um, down the line as well because you'd pass quicker because if you're able to retain the information, 
you, you, you wouldn't have to retake anything or, or, or much less. But that's, that's again, the thing of like passing it down the line is, is also what happens when you've taken the training angle, initially the initial training away from the airlines because the, the persons doing the flight training don't see the benefit of that in the long term. If you were doing flight training all the time with an airline from the very beginning, then I think you could look at that approach as a, as a cost basis. But because you're doing it flight school and then an airline, they actually don't see that benefit. So that's why you have the type of education that you have now, I think. And um, I mean, there is some logic to it in a certain extent, like I said before, but it's, um, it just feels like, I, mean, I remember from my own perspective that um, what we had with our flight school, and I think a lot of um, perhaps the better flight schools, you have uh, school tests before you do ATPL tests. And you have to pass those, and they're generally harder and a higher pass mark than the ATPL exams. And I think that's fairly logical. But actually, a lot of us, including myself, we failed some of the school tests. But that was kind of the idea, is that it was meant to show you the the, the, the weaknesses in your knowledge and to make sure that you never fail the ATPL test. Like a database. But, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But then, but then again, you know, it's also a little bit strange because the whole... The, the outcome is that you don't fail the ATPL exam. The outcome is not really that you know the subjects better. Yeah, and I, I mean, when you think about it, there's two totally different uh, situations in your education. First of all, you have the ATPL, you just have to gain information reading books. And then the second part is just so practical. So at one stage, you can be the you can be the best of the class, and at another stage, you can just fail the school. So it's, 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 it's quite difficult to, to check for flight schools whether you're good in both because you do the pre-assessment for flight schools, but do they, did, did they check both with you, your technical skills in flying and the, the ability to learn? Well, this was also interesting. Um, again, so I don't want to keep talking about my old flight school, but uh, one thing was that they had a, a psychological assessment before joining. And I don't know how many flight schools do that where you have this real test, a real quite in-depth with an actual psychologist. And the interesting part about that was, uh, coming on to a little bit later on, um, there's now a requirement because of the German Wings incident, there's now a requirement that when uh, airlines are going to start hiring, especially from a cadet basis, EASA is looking into having um, some kind of psychological assessment done on the pilots or it's having the pilot, uh, airlines having to quantify with their recruitment that they're able to have some kind of analytical, um, yeah, an analytical statement of that person's mental health as much as physical health, as much as a medical, as much as a rating. And that's going to be quite interesting going in from that because that's something that's not necessarily easy to pass or fail. And if there's even a failure rating on a psychological assessment, yeah, true. And, and that's for the pilots who are starting a flight school, but for the pilots who are already flying, I think they want to implement it with uh, the medical, with their, with their yearly medical. They want to do like a, like a, yeah, it already is. They will, they'll make, with your yearly medical, they, they can make a small psychological assessment and basically it's just general questions about how your life is. And, but I mean, yeah, it can be, can be a good thing, I guess. Yeah, but then the question is uh, what, um, what that information is and uh, how it's processed. And that's, also a big part of it because I think most of us, if we have a question in our aviation medical, where I think most pilots are likely to be dishonest for fear of failing the medical. Yeah, very, very true. Like I, the first time he asked me, like, have you got any CRM issues? How are things at home? I asked him, like, why are you asking me these questions? And he was like, yeah, well, it's mandatory to do as well. And I, I, I asked him, like, how do you, like, assess this and how does, does it feel? He's like, for now, there's no failure of things. But if I can clearly see you have some, is- well, potential issues going on, he has to, like, report it, of course. But I think it's a very good thing because, like we said, I think there's more people probably struggling with mental health than we think. You know, a lot of pilots probably, we, we always say, like, how are you, Elmer right? And you just go to work and do your job like nothing's going on. Lots of people probably crop all these feelings up and just don't talk about it. So I think it's quite a good thing to implement, but it needs to be done cautiously. I think, I think just what we were saying about, you know, school or college and now career in terms of the airline, I think, and I'm going to be the one to say this, this is a bit, this is a very cutthroat 
and a bit of an arrogant industry. And I think the problem you've got here is when you're in college, you know the curriculum. You know what the exam board, depending on which exam board is 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 doing which questions, you're preparing correctly for that for that examination. In flying, you've got a million different ways someone will take a topic and ask you a minute say more than once one way to skin a cat, and you'll 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 go right, okay, you might understand something, but the way someone else asks the question relating to the same topic, the way they expect you to answer that question, you might not know how to answer it. Doesn't mean you don't understand it. It doesn't mean you don't, you don't, it means you don't understand it from their perspective. So everyone tends to have a different perspective of the same topic. And that's, I think, confuses people. And that also leads to failure. But then aren't we the same as well? Because if you see on your roster, you've got a line check. And the first thing you do is like, oh, who I'm with? And you're going to ask your colleague on the first day, like, what is he like? You exactly. know, yeah, is he very heavy on the systems? Is he very heavy on procedures? Does he want you to like do this or that? Like, that's the first thing you ask. So in the basic, we're very similar than even college people. It's just we just want so to. So what you're saying is, the the, the 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 so how you process stress is involving how you deal uh, how you how you make failures, you know. Yeah, but to an to an extent, we're saying basically there is an element of inconsistency. We're not not always, and we try to be consistent as possible. But there are trip ups in terms of inconsistency. Okay, perfect, guys. And so let's have a look at a little bit about assessments and applications. I think this is something which uh, is is really interesting for discussing failure in aviation, because from my own perspective, one of the biggest things is feedback. Well, we are, especially in a time like now, where a lot of us have been unemployed for a long period and we've been applying for jobs, we don't tend to receive any kind of feedback. So how do pilots process this? How do they process the failure of uh, assessments or of applications? Guys, what do you think? Well, I think we're the worst industry when it comes to feedback. I think, you know, you look at every other industry, you know, say IT, and generally they get feedback there and then. I think I've only had one airline that I've ever had the selection process where I failed and got feedback from. And I think it's it's the worst because not knowing what you've not knowledge is power and if you don't know what you've done wrong all you do is just repeat repeat and repeat um so you know i think it's really we, i think we're the one industry that's quite terrible for not giving feedback where, where we really should be yeah because maybe the feedback they want to give is not based on you failing but just based on their preference maybe you know maybe it's not something that you did wrong but yeah they just have other other options available you know maybe you just don't fit in the company both profile that doesn't mean that you did something wrong but at least it would be nice to know yeah true but at least would be at least true but at least it would be nice to know that it doesn't take your confidence away you know by 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 knowing that you're good enough but just don't fit in their company profile perhaps no but then it's like sort of two different scenarios it's when you're failing or uh, you're not successful shall we say a better way of putting it you're not successful in an application but then you have it where you're unsuccessful in an uh, assessment and that's i think the most the more difficult thing to deal with as pilots yeah i i totally agree like for me personally if if you you apply to an airline and you see the selection process usually what scares me the most is all these psychometric tests and everything you have to do because you feel like you need to have a certain mark in order to pass. And usually the simulator or the, the interview is something I go in quite relaxed because that's where you just show yourself and who you are. And of course, you'll answer the questions they ask you. And well, there's a bit of theoretical knowledge involved usually. But personally, for me, the, 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 all those online tests or psychometric tests is what, is what scares me the most because I feel like I need to be at a certain level Otherwise, it just won't take you on. Yeah, and it doesn't change you as a pilot. I mean, um, the preparation is key. It's key about every assessment. But I, I failed assessments, and then the next one I prepared double, and I knew what to expect, but it didn't change me as a pilot. It just gave me an advantage in the assessment process. So it's just a, a moment in time where you show that you're up for the job, but it, you're not a different pilot as a week before without preparation. It also, I don't know how much necessarily it is. Obviously, there's a certain amount of preparation I think we all do for all assessments. Right? But I think a part of the biggest thing is is learning how to to play the game, right? And that also becomes in terms of preparation. It's 
it's not just the preparation of your knowledge or your skills. It's also your preparation of the company and of the recruitment process of that company. It's like trying to get as much information as you can to try to, to try to pass the assessment, to try to fit in to what, what they want, which is uh, also kind of strange because you don't, you think that you don't uh, change yourself, but everybody does. Everybody changes their personality to mirror the people they're with. It's just a social response to that. Now, just basically insisting that every pilot with a license is good enough for every job. It just depends on their attitude to, in the assessment, whether they fit for the job or not. You know what I mean? It's also very different depending on airlines. I mean, certain airlines have very different uh, ways of doing recruitment. Some recruit based on a profile. And uh, sometimes that profile doesn't change for decades. Sometimes it changes every time the new head of recruitment is installed. And when it's on a, on a profile basis, then then you, you kind of have to fit that mold. So even if you are unsuccessful, you haven't failed, you just don't fit that mold. But uh, other airlines do competency-based assessments. And then that should be the most, um, should be the most fair in a way because you're assessing everybody in the same way and you're not going from it from a perspective, this is what we want. Or you're going at it as a saying of, we need to see these competencies and these ICAO uh, situations. And that should be the most fair. But you also need to know, uh, is the company looking for a competency base or are they looking for a profile base? Well, I was flying with someone, I remember a captain telling me once that he flew with an ex-first officer who went for a specific legacy carrier and and when they asked when he asked him what what did he do to pass he said well he just put the airline brain in his head he took his brain out and put the airline brain in and and you know i don't know what you make of that but i do think i think you know what you do in your professional you're, you're saying you know what you do in your professional life i think why shouldn't you do that why why you know you're not changing your personality you're 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 actually adapting yourself to meet the operation. So I don't see what the, the problem is with that. I, I don't, I have a real skepticism about all these psychometric tests, you know, the psychometric tests. I, I don't think they really define whether someone can do the job or not. I think if someone has a state of mind to do a job, they'll do the job. It should provide a framework. That's the idea. It should provide a framework for the assessment because you should get an idea of, um, if it's a, if it's a psychometric testing to understand pilot core competencies, the IKEA ones, that it should provide a basement for your a base for your assessment. So you should have an idea of where someone's strengths and weaknesses are, and then you can explore them to prove them or to disprove them, basically. Uh, but you use it as a framework. But if you have a if you come from a, if you're doing it from a live perspective where you have a mold that you're looking for, it's uh, to me it seems quite dangerous because what you're effectively looking is for the same person every single time or the same type of personality and i think that's a little bit uh, strange from a company's perspective because i think you shouldn't look for everyone to be the same that's not a very healthy thing for any company i would say i mean my, me myself i've been in many companies uh, voluntarily or not but uh, i've been and for me I've, I did many different assessments and basically in every company the work is exactly the same. So the, the kind of assessment doesn't matter, the work is the same. It's just that the companies deal in a different way with failure of their pilots. I think that defines the company culture, whether you're allowed to make mistakes or how they, how they deal with you when making a mistake. This is the major thing for me different in different companies. So the flying will be the same, it's just how they deal with you as a person, uh, as a professional, if making mistakes. But I think also then Gary makes a good point to that, which is that perhaps if the assessment is going to set up what the company culture is like, then maybe that's also a good thing because we know like geographically, certain jobs tend to have certain uh, response to failure based on where they are geographically. Middle Eastern, Asia-based carriers tend to be a lot stricter and more harsh on on failure than perhaps say European or legacy type carriers. But it doesn't necessarily reflect that in the way they recruit. But I think there has to be some element of, of, of looking at that and working out what it is the company expects of you and trying to assess that in the assessment phase. Yeah. 
I agree. I, I think you're really, if you don't know what a company wants, you can't, it's like anything. We talk about cultural diversity, for example, but we need to, you know, that's why we disclose, it's exactly the same thing. When you, when you apply for a job, you disclose for equal opportunities so that, that you can get respect for that, that they can respect those equal opportunities. If they don't know if you have any, say, uh, any special special needs or anything like that then they can't respect that it's the same with us how can we uh, uh how can we change our model of thinking to suit the company if we don't know what the company wants in order to respect that and act upon it so basically we don't we don't have the we don't have the luxury to to choose the company and choose the company culture so our fate is just to adapt to the company rather than choose like this is not the company culture that fits me yeah, like, well, Gary, like what you said, usually when you go and apply somewhere, the first thing you do is like, you message all your friends, like, do you know anybody's here? Uh, what is the interview like? What do they want? What do they expect for you? Like, you just try to mold yourself into that interview and to get the job. That's what we all do. And some people say they don't, but I, I secretly think we. But isn't that interesting? Because, I mean, I, I know it can be said for, for many different professions. Uh, but ultimately, what airlines expect of you from an assessment is not to fail. Yeah. Right. Effectively, that's what they're that's what they're asking, and they're not asking they're asking you not to fail to their expectations. And follows on from that is that if you if you are unsuccessful in an application and if you do not receive any kind of feedback, that's what's so difficult to process because you fail to meet their expectations. And sometimes you'll know why. Sometimes it's going to happen. You're going to mess something up and you're going to know it. But I think a lot of the times you won't know. And that's what's so hard to deal with, with failure in, in the assessment stage. Okay, guys, uh, I think the next thing we can uh, look a little bit about is about, we touched a little bit on it earlier, about top, uh, type ratings, also uh, command upgrades, uh, other roles within companies. How we, how we deal with failure in this regard. And I think one of the most interesting things from, from this perspective is, I think it touches in flight school as well, but it goes much further when it comes into companies and type ratings, about also a fear of stigma. If you have trouble, if you need extra training, if you don't pass something first time, I think there's also a big fear that you will be stigmatized because I think when you look at the, the pressures of of, of aviation and how much there is a, a perception that you must pass everything and you must be perfect and you must be first time ATPLs, must be first time instrument rating. That there's a huge fear about not being first in doing that. And I, I think you know we've all been in a situation where we've been in a breakfast uh, down route somewhere and people are talking about, oh, someone's done this or someone's done that. And I think it's something that we need to be a lot better on as pilots as well uh, as an aviation community. So what do you guys feel about the stigma of failure within a company? Yeah, as, as you said, uh, Tim, the, 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 there's one thing of, of failing a assessment or a flight school. You just have to deal with it with yourself and gain confidence and prepare better and then pass the assessment. But the second thing is when you when you fail something in the airline, then you have the feeling of shame towards your colleagues. Maybe you know you, you're you're flying with other people, and they they start to think like, why is this guy upgraded yet? Or he, 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 the people behind him are already upgraded. So then you have to deal with another feeling of going to work with with a, with a feeling of shame that that everyone knows that you didn't feel uh, did, that you didn't pass the simulator assessment or you didn't pass the the command interview. So it's it's just it's a bigger bigger influence on your life when you feel something in the company because more people are involved. Yeah, and I think that's. That, that's a huge amount of pressure as well, um, especially with the way that I think everyone is aware of what's going on. Aviation is a very small world and a com an aviation company is a very small part of that. And everyone kind of knows what everyone is, is up to. And I think it's um, what, what I would very much like to get into uh, probably towards the end of this podcast is, is talking about how the airlines... Um, approach failure as well because they're the ones who will who will set the standards uh, for this and um it's company culture becomes very very crucial to this 
kind of stigma and how it's dealt with. And I think that will a lot depend on the airline in how that in how that's done as well, and how the the leaders or the perceived leaders of the airlines cope with that. Because I think a lot of people will want to hide away from any kind of failure. They will want no one to know about it because of the fear of the stigma that comes with that. But um, we, we are all, all taught from day one of human performance limitations that we make six to seven mistakes every day, every single year. So we're all going to make mistakes. None of us are perfect. And sometimes those mistakes can be bigger or more influential to our careers than others. Uh, but it's I, I fear that in aviation, especially because it's so cutthroat and it's so competitive, especially because of how you enter the profession and how you invest in that profession, that there's, we always talk about snakes in the grass or people who perhaps like to climb over others to get to the top. And I think that's a very dangerous precedent. And I think that how the company culture sets that up is very important. So basically what you're talking about is the just culture of a company. It's how they deal with failures of their pilots. So basically they have two ways of dealing with, with the failure of their pilots. Like they can either use it against you, punish you, give you extra simulated training, or they can use the failure you make to improve the company just to prevent that other people will make this failure. So I've been in separate companies who had separate uh, rules for their just culture. I had companies who said they had a just culture, but they used well your, your mistakes against you. And I actually at company we had like an anonymous reporting system where you can admit your failures just to just to protect the other ones in the company. I think that's quite a good just culture. And how was that done? Was it done by a safety report or done by a internal report? Uh, the one you can do anonymously was done by a if it was not safety related but something you wanted to improve in the company, you could either do it with your name or you could do it through a uh, initial. Uh, how do you call it? In a reporting system, yeah, but but flight safety related, of course, you had to do via the flight safety reporting system. You cannot do it anonymous, of course, but they deal with it in an anonymous way. Uh, that's why I think it's interesting because you, whenever you have a flight safety department and whenever you have any kind of incident or uh, accident or anything that requires any type of investigation, uh, most, especially European airlines, have a system by which that's done by the flight safety department. And the reason for that is we're all familiar with is, is to take that away from the operational side, from the training side, to look at this from a perspective, or hopefully from an anonymous perspective as well, and, and going from that point onwards. But of course, at the end, the safety department have to make a determination on the findings that they have. And that's where the, the company culture and how the pilots perceive the just culture uh, very much comes into play. Because... Um, at some point, the operational side of things will be involved, and at some point, the training department will be involved. And especially if it comes from any kind of incident uh, or accident, then perhaps the next simulator sessions will be influenced from what happens. So everyone, as the aviation world is a small world, everyone will be aware of what that is. So it makes it very difficult um, for pilots to be honest, I think, because even if you open yourself up in what is supposed to be an entirely anonymous process, at the end of the day, at the point of the safety department, at the point where that comes to the fact that we need to change something operationally, the operations people will be involved. And they're the same people who will know the pilots who are involved and will have influence on their, on their careers, on their potential upgrades, on simulator instructor roles, line training instructor roles. So it becomes very difficult to quantify that information and how it works. And I think it's very easy for companies to have a very clear, just culture written in manuals. But the difficulty is not just in actually maintaining that practice. It's also maintaining the perception that the companies are doing that in the right way. And that's the most difficult thing, because if the pilots have any fear for a second that they're not, the honesty of that system goes completely out of the window. Yeah, I... I agree. I think the the problem you've got, it goes back to, I think it goes back to unconscious incompetence. You don't know what you don't know. And I think there needs to be more communication. I think, again, unfortunately, I think a lot of it goes down to money. If there's money to spare, then they'll invest more in the training. If there's not, then it's going to be 
the scrutiny is going to lie on the candidate, or the trainee. Um, and uh, I think that's that's it puts a lot of pressure. Certainly puts a lot of pressure because you don't know where you're going to come. I've seen guys get remedial training, and I've seen guys get uh, booted. Um, and um, you know, it's 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 sad because I I think I think there's nothing. Essentially, I think there's nothing wrong with failing, but I think, unfortunately, I hate to say this, but I think it's the worst industry for failing, especially when it comes to things like type ratings, because you're trying to condense all that information in a short space of time when you have to be realistic. We are only human. And I think uh, I think it's easily forgotten in this industry. Well, you're talking about unconscious, what well, you don't know, and you don't know until you don't know it. and. Uh, and that that's kind of interesting, even beyond the type rating perspective. Is that like you you're maintaining a certain amount of knowledge over a period of time of working on an aircraft, but at, at some time, whenever there's any kind of incident, it's normally um, if it if it comes down to pilot error, it's normally that point of when pilots don't know what they don't know, and that's very interesting. I, I've been involved in a conversation with a, a previous 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 airline um, that where basically they have said that um, whenever they have uh, safety reports, they have such a large volume of reports on a daily basis that whenever they can say quickly and simply that it's pilot error, then the simplest scenario is you say it's pilot error, you give the pilots remedial training, you satisfy the aviation authorities and you close the investigation. And that was the policy of that airline, because simply for expediency and for financial reasons, they're able to get the guys back on the line. And no one is really assessing very much beyond the surface as to what the failure is, because it's all about getting those guys flying again and getting the operations going again. And that seems to be the more uh, the more potent point, which which is very negative on on the pilots involved because they the fear of death, they have failed, where actually it's more that there are so many factors involved. But if you can say it's pilot error, that's the easiest and it's easiest to satisfy. Yeah, true. And, and at the end, it will cost the company more money because as a pilot, you basically have to be a bit flexible in the operation. And uh, in certain company, maybe in the Middle East, if you cross certain limits or uh, maybe a stabilized flight or something, you have to make a go around no matter what. So there's no room to be flexible to to make an efficient operation. So at the end, it will cost the company more money by making more go-arounds or taking more fuel. Or So they take away your flexibility just to make everything standard. I don't think that's, that's, that's a really good thing. I just, want to put, I just want to put a bit of clarity on that because we were talking about unconscious incompetence. Obviously, the, the first stage of the learning matrix, I didn't talk about the other three. So we've got unconscious incompetence, conscious incompetence, where you know what you don't know. So let's say, you know, you start learning what you actually don't know and you need to learn it. Then you've got conscious competence, which is like when you start making acronyms and you start learning flows and you, you have a way of, of, of maneuvering around the scan. Um, so you know what you know, but you need to get better at it. And then you have unconscious competence, which means it's basically a second nature. And the, the, so, so basically you're just doing everything without working out what the scan flow is. You just know it. Um, the, the, the irony behind it is there's a point where everything clicks. And I think the sad part is what, if you can get past that hurdle, the, the, the sad part is many, many people get past that hurdle, but few don't. And, and I think there's a point where it could all fix in, where if they got that and they, and they got to the, conscious, the unconscious competence, after that, it all works. Everything, you know, you wonder how didn't you know that in the first place? How couldn't you know that in the first place? And and so I think that's the other part, the, the, the sad part about this this part of failure, is that you know it's it's it puts people it, it knocks your confidence in that in that kind of area. But that's the training. That's the training side of it, and that's where you as pilots, when you you do have a failure of some description, that's where you want the training side to come in to help you get to that next stage and get beyond it. And if that's remedial training or simulated training, that, that, that's one thing. But you actually need that, that training because that, the cycle of conscious unconsciousness, it's, it's a constantly revolving thing. And right? because 
you're, you're, it's also what you're exposed to. And when you're exposed to something that you've never been exposed to before, then that takes you back to the very beginning again. And when that happens, okay, you go through that, but then you need the training and the time and the understanding from a company perspective that you've faced something you've not faced before. And even if you've been uh, successful, there can still need to be some kind of investigation for that, or if you've had a certain level of success. But it's um, this is where the competency comes in, I think. This is where the, the, the culture of the company is so crucial to what comes next. But also making, making an error as a pilot, I mean, you cannot really share it with your family because they don't really know anything about the aviation part. So they can just basically support you and tell you that you're doing well and everything is okay and you'll be fine. And you can also not really share it with your colleagues because then you admit that you that that you made a mistake and you can have a feeling of shame. So at times you can you kind of really on your own with with, with with the mistakes you made and you had to deal with it. So for a pilot, it can be hard to relate to someone who made the same mistakes because you're afraid of sharing it. I mean that that also depends on probably the, the type of company you're in and what kind of company culture like. The companies I've been in, I found it fairly easy. Like if I've made a mistake, I would on a fly go to a captain like, look, I've done this and this. What do you think? What do you tell? What would you advise me to do better? How to improve myself? And that's probably easier because I'm a first officer and asset to a captain. The other way around would probably not be as easy as the first officer in general has less experience in his whole career. But that's what's also really interesting uh, from my perspective is that um, when you are a captain and you're in the left-hand seat, you also have to be very aware of what your role is as well, especially to first officers, because they're going, they are, that is the time, as when uh, Robin said, you can't talk to family really. So they're the people you're coming to for advice on your failures. And I think it's very, very critical that the captains understand that and try to not look at it as a perspective of, oh, well, you should have done this, you should have done that. that that's your support network, actually when you're a first officer. And I think it's really important to how captains react to that and how they tell you. Because I think the most times when I've had that is when you've made a mistake and you tell a captain about it. The best thing is when a captain goes, oh yeah, I did that and this, this, oh, tell me, let me tell you about this. Rather than going, oh no, I've never had that situation. I've never made a mistake. Look at me, I'm perfect. I know that's an extreme example, but it's, it's really important that you embrace that talk with your first officer about failure. Um, yeah, it's funny as you mentioned that because nine out of ten times when I was a safety pilot, when a new FO was being trained, I always try when they made a mistake, I always tried to comfort them like, look, we've all done this. I've been in your position like 12 months ago. Don't worry. You see them all getting wound up and stressed because, oh, I'm messing my, my line training up. It's like, dude, calm down. You're absolutely fine. I've done the same thing. The guy before me has done the same thing. The guy before that has done the same thing. You know, breathe in, breathe out. Go. You're doing a great job. Okay, guys, one of the last uh, topics uh, for discussing today, we wanted to talk a little bit about something which is very prevalent in the aviation industry uh, in the last year or so and probably continuing uh, for the foreseeable future. And uh, we want to talk a little bit about uh, redundancy and about losing your job and the perception of, of failure in that regard. And I think from our perspective, it's 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 very hard to, to, to process and to understand of how did I make the right decision? Uh, if you lose your job due to uh, redundancy or due to bankruptcy, how does that feel for you guys as a pilot? Guys, what do you think? Well, for me, it feels my losing my job. Uh, I don't feel it as a, like a failure to myself because it's out of my control. I mean, Corona just hits us all. It's not really something I can do something about, but the feeling I have is maybe I should have uh, like a backup because I started uh, flight school at a very young age, so I didn't create a extra education or some backup for aviation for situations like this. So maybe this is the feeling I can have now, like, oh, I'm, I'm very restricted to aviation at this time. The only thing I can do is basically fly or, or work in a grocery shop. So that's that's maybe the failure you can, you can feel yourself that I should have maybe prepared more for situations like this and be more educated in other ways so this is the time of course to do it but it's it's a bit too late i mean of course the situation you never expect to happen but this is the feeling you can have like oh i'm really restricted to the area of aviation instead of 
being working somewhere else in general areas. I don't know that that's possible because I majored in IT in college with physics and maths, and you know I could have gone one way into computing. I've got guys who do web development now. You know, when you go down a path like flying, it's a very it's an elite path. It's a very it requires all of your energy, uh, and I even ran uh, business. And um, I was doing finance in between. And um, and even then, it's tough now from that perspective. So I, if you put your energy into something, especially with this job, this career, it's very difficult. I mean, technology has changed so much. I can't really go without really going back and going back to college and, and, and re-educating myself. It's very difficult to go back into the IT world. And that's the booming world because technology has changed. So I really don't know if it's always feasible to say you know just we were in flying that's our vocation that's what we know no true but i've been warned by before the flight school that basically okay be sure you want to start the education now because maybe you should do a different education than the pilot job and then become a pilot because you're going to a huge depth at least you have something to fall back to and now after many years of flying you have a lot of uh, mortgage uh, you have a lot of fixed costs so losing your job now is like a big sacrifice when you don't have any other skills yeah go ahead i mean we have skills but we don't have the education yes but then let's say you've done a degree before you start flight school and this happens 10 15 years into your career like how relevant is a degree like 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 gary said you've done an it degree 15 years ago like things change so rapidly and you won't have any experience so will it actually be relevant that's what i'm asking myself so that's what I said, you're so bound to aviation right now that maybe the only thing another thing we can do is work in the grocery shop with with, with, with the salary wise. We we're not able to compete with the job we did. It's no it's no chance. Yeah, but then as well, like would a would a lawyer or a doctor do a backup? Something like that. Would they do it? Like some some high profile jobs. No, no, they won't do it either. No, but they, but no, but their market is not as fragile as the one we work in. I mean, we, the, 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 the market of aviation is the first market to hit by a crisis and the last one to come out. So in one way, we are we had to be prepared for this. I think the biggest problem with our industry um, is the way the recruitment takes place and the way a, a loss of a job takes place. If you don't get a job as a, as a lawyer, there are several more law firms to apply to. OK, you don't get a job as a pilot. I'll wait till next year. You have to wait 12 months to reapply to that airline. And if that airline is recruiting at that point in time, and you have to do the selection process again. You know, it's it's such a long-winded process reapplying. All the energy, all the time, all the money that goes into that, just, just applying for a job, it's completely soul-destroying. And then to get that far... 12 year career or whatever to have to do it all over again or then go back and do a job in and i'm not i'm not an arrogant person i'm not putting down anyone that works in say a supermarket but to go back and do that kind of job what what, it kind of what's the point what's the what was the point in never being a pilot i'm sorry to say it but you know and that and and that's a very difficult thing i mean i think it's a very difficult thing that a lot of us have been facing recently i mean i know from myself like Going, becoming unemployed uh, when you have a young family and the, the feeling of stress and pressure that is on you. And even though you know, if you think of it logically, you, you know you didn't do anything wrong. You, you can't have prepared really for Corona. I mean, we've discussed a little bit about how you might have been able to prepare, but it's, it's, it's so difficult to know what you could have done differently, but ultimately there's not a lot we really could have done. None of us were expecting really to lose our jobs in, in 2020 or 2021. It only took something like Corona. And I do, I do accept your, your point, Robin, that the aviation is a very fragile market, but it's, it's, it's so difficult to deal with that, that feeling. And, and again, on what we discussed earlier, like you can't really talk to your family about it to a certain extent. And I've had it myself over the last six months where people are coming up like, oh, yeah, but you could do something else. You have skills for this, this and this. But there's a requirement, especially where I live in the Netherlands, that to get certain jobs, you have to have a bachelor's degree or you have to have a master's degree. And or years of experience. Or years of experience. Yeah. And, and the flying education that we have, um, for the most part, we can discuss the competencies and skills we can bring, but ultimately you don't fulfill the portfolio of what someone's looking for. 
And that's a difficult argument. And it, it leads to a very, um, uh, a kind of almost soul-destroying feeling for you as a person, because ultimately you're looking for jobs which don't fulfill you and you're trying to do whatever you can do to provide for your family. And then you really have this, this feeling of failure, which is, which is so unfair, but, it, but it's a perception. And it's something that's so detrimental to your, to your mental health. Yeah. And in addition to that, like if you do a job application and they see you have been a pilot or you are a pilot, they know you will fly again pretty soon. I don't know when it will happen, but it will happen. So they won't hire you because you will leave again. So in all ways, you're just being like, I'm not saying discriminated, but I'm just saying you, you don't fit the profile. Yeah, I mean, I've been in loads of job interviews where literally the first question is like, so we look, look at you, Sophie. So you're a pilot and it's Corona. So as soon as everything goes uh, back to normal, like, are you going to go back flying? That's the first question they ask. And it's like, yeah, of course. Like, I'm not going to lie to you. And you will just see the interview is done in like a really short amount of time. Like, they're like, we're not going to hire you for the next six to 12 months. And they just kind of wind you off. Effectively, effectively, you're overqualified now. I think you're, you're. I think in in our we work in an area. I think that is considered upper middle upper management. Someone said this to me once, and I agree with that. And uh, I'm looking. I've actually applied for non-flying jobs, and they're in the realm of half the salary we were on. Effectively, and we're the funny thing is when you look at it. In some ways, you can argue you're overqualified, but in other ways, you're underqualified because you don't have the experience that they want to do that job. But in actual fact, you could probably do the job just as well, given a bit of experience. So, you know. I mean, I've, I find it it's interesting. I mean, I don't say this in an arrogant way, but I've, I've had, I think, six or seven airline assessments in my entire career, and I've passed every single one of them. And... Before I became a pilot, every single, uh, every single job that I applied for, um, I'd been successful every time I had an interview. And uh, again, I really don't mean this in an arrogant way, but what happened since losing my job in aviation was is so... I've, I've gone from a point where up until the point of doing training, I was able to get jobs that I applied for. Then I became qualified and I was able to get jobs I applied for. And then when I knew I was losing my job in aviation, I think uh, I applied for something like 76 jobs uh, of different natures and different possibilities of where I live. And I had one interview, not even just all flat out rejections. And the, the feeling of that is something which I've never had before in my life. Like, it's just that feeling that you, you couldn't provide for your family. It's, it's a really deep feeling. And I think it's something that we definitely want to get into in, in later podcasts as well. I think one of our next ones is, is planned on, on mental health and the stresses of this profession. And, and even though this is a period of unemployment and furlough and redundancy, it's still a part of the pressures of being a pilot. And I think looking at it from a retrospective point of view, from, day, uh, from Tim, I have probably passed two or three selection processes out of 10 um, that I've taken in my time five to ten um and so the ones that i did get were like gold dust so to lose it i have to now go back to the drawing board and do it all over again the benefit i had before is that i had a career i had a flying career whilst i was failing all the other other jobs so i got my first flying career um and then i had to and then and then i you know went through into another airline just because they acquired the first airline and then I managed to get into uh, the jet sector on, on, on the third and fourth airline. Um, but um, now to have that all gone, I now have to go back to the drawing board. And I don't know if I'll be able to get back into the flying career just because of these, the way these selection processes are conducted. doesn't mean I can't do the job. I've got over 6,000 hours, but it does not mean, you know, and, and, and I've never had a problem. My training records were all fine. So it's not a fact that I can't do the job or do even do the job well. It's the fact that I can't pass those selection processes, you know, so that, that's where the stress comes on to me, you know. So that's, a re you know, looking at it from the retrospective point of view. Okay, guys, thank you very much. I think that's all we've got time for for this uh, episode of the Stuck Mike podcast. Thank you very much to Robin, Gary, and Davey. Thanks, Tim. Yeah, thanks, Tim. It was a lot of fun again. Looking forward to the next one. Yeah, it was great. It was really, I really liked this conversation. It was good. Thanks very much for, for having us. 
Perfect. And uh, of course, uh, if you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, we'd uh, please like to invite you to like, share and review it. It really helps uh, with our algorithms on social media. So please like and review on Apple Podcasts. And you can find us on our socials on Instagram, Facebook and LinkedIn. Just search for the Stuck My Podcast. Until next time, thank you very much and see you again.